future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, welcome, welcome. Yes, here we are. It is Friday, May 6, 2022. This has been one hell of an entry into May, if I don't say so myself. Welcome to Raging Chickens Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. And each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Simply head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress and choose your membership level. You can also help out the show right now by heading on over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time we go live. And look, you can sign up for our podcast. Make sure you're kind of signing up for our podcast. You can get us wherever you get your podcast, right? And... And, right, if you get your podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts, for example, um, make sure you hit that five-star review and just give us a little review, right? We get those five-star reviews, and then we get little reviews from people who actually listen to this show there. It helps other people find the show, right? helps get our kind of listener base even up even more on our podcast. It's been fantastic so far, um, and I know that's a result of all of you that are kind of like helping us out by giving us that review, hitting those five-star ratings. Do it on um, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, on this week's show, well, look, uh, we're going to be having a, a kind of fairly like, fairly focused show today. Uh, I mean, I don't think that there's any getting around the fact that uh, the main thing that we've got staring us in the face is confirmation that the Supreme Court is uh, planning on overturning Roe v. Wade this week or this summer. Uh, we saw the leaked draft opinion from Samuel Alito, um, and, you know, there is, while there's back and forth, yes, there's all sorts of qualifications we have to make. This is not the final version and all on. This is the expected result. Now, we'll get into that uh, a little bit. We'll get into some of the, uh, the actual opinion, which I have been making my way through. Um, we're going to talk a little about the Supreme Court today. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about um, what I would call Democratic Party fails on this score and 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 so many others. Um, but I think uh, we're going to take a look at Rebecca Traister's piece this week, um, which I think was kind of right on the money. I mean, she's pretty much one of my go-to people when I'm looking for um, kind of spot on analysis about um one of the problems about how we got here but we'll get to all that we're also going to talk a little bit about the uh kind of kind of uh let's i was gonna say unintended but i'm gonna say you know kind of like expected consequences of austerity policies at the pa state system of higher education um we're gonna take a little peek uh through the lens of uh kutztown university um 
as uh, just to kind of say this is what will happen, what has been expected to happen through uh, Chancellor Daniel Greenstein's uh, policies and uh, attempts to remake the state system of higher education. We'll get into that and so much more on today's show. Um, <clears throat> for more PA Progressive Talk, tune to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your streams. And make sure you subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And yes, if it's, you know, season two of Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast is in the, you know, it's well into season two. I mean, it's even kind of reminding people that it's season two. It's not even necessary at this point because they're so far into season two and they're still doing so awesome work. But uh, they just had released another uh, kind of emergency podcast um, in the wake of the uh, leaked SCOTUS document, a Supreme Court document, from my opinion, from Alito. Um, I'd strongly recommend that uh, if you haven't been listening to Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast already, uh, now is the time to head on over there because uh, we're going to need every single one of their um, their minds, their organizational skills, uh, their analysis and direction as we kind of move forward. Um, so definitely head on over to the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast um, and uh, subscribe to their podcast wherever you get them, Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever. Make sure you're following them on Twitter um, at at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. At attention gamers, the Game Inn is a Quaker Town-based black, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything from retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, and look, kids get A's on their report card, they get a discount. How awesome is that? Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Game Inn. That's at the Game Inn with two N's. You got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. Special shout out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at SongAdayMan, two N's, at SongAdayMan on Twitter. And look, if you want to help, help us end the domination of right wing money that's tipping the scales to the extreme, on our school board and in our communities well we're making that easy for you you can simply drop us a donation at the raging chicken community fund that's at ragingchicken.levelfield.net you can help us support community organizing and progressive candidates that communities and our children deserve um, we will be funding organizing efforts where we can that we will be dropping money and raising money for candidates um, um, and look we are not affiliated with any candidates we are kind of independent and so we don't need to listen to the, uh, you know, out of state kind of Democratic Party millionaire consultants giving us a piece of their mind about what we should be saying. No, nope. we know the people on the ground. And that's where the money is going to go. We're going to invest in organizing and we're going to invest in our communities. Head on to ragingchicken.levelfield.net and help us support our communities in the fight back. Got some show notes uh, coming up um, on Out to Coop Live. Uh, this coming Monday, we've got Jonathan Casa on the show. Uh, Jonathan is a North Penn school board member, and uh, he has been in the thick of uh, fighting the good fight against a wave of radical 
right-wing money and organizations in his school district. I think you're going to find a lot of what he has been fighting back against and what he has been exposing his school district is going to echo with the stories that we're hearing from the Central Bucks School Board. So we're hearing at the Penridge School Board, the Palisade School Board, um, Quakertown School Board, um, right throughout Bucks County. This is why we've been having such a focus on these school boards because they are the testing grounds for building right-wing organizing in this county. This is why we have to fight back. This is why we're focusing on it and why Jonathan's going to be on the show on Monday. We're going to talk about that and much more. Uh, also, just to kind of, this is a little bit ahead of time, but I wanted to let you know about something that's coming up. Now, of course, we've got to remember the primaries are on, are on Tuesday the 17th. That's Tuesday, May 17th. Um, that Monday night, um, the 16th, we're probably just going to have an open show um, and with, with no guest in part because um, I'm working the polls all day on, um, on Tuesday. And uh, I know my mind is going to be in that space and I don't want to do any guest uh, short shrift on that score. Um, so we'll be doing that. But the following Monday on the 23rd, I'm going to have Sarah Aniano on the show. She is a researcher recently graduated from uh, Monmouth University with a master's in communication. But she has been doing this stellar work on social media misinformation and the rhetoric of the far right and how they have basically garnered this nationwide media attention through that kind of work. Um, she digs into that kind of like like dark ecosystem to expose what's going on. And she's working to kind of basically use her expertise in the future to clean up the information ecosystem online. Um, her work is fantastic. Um, I'm really looking forward to that show. That is Monday, the 23rd at 7 p.m. That's Sarah Aniano. Um, she is a, a fantastic. I'm really excited to be bringing her on the show then. So look, everybody, we want a progressive future. We need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches homegrown media today. Become a Raging Chicken patron for as little as five bucks a month. Just go to patreon.com slash rcpress today. We're here for the fight and we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media and the movement and the movement and the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Just head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. So here we are, everybody. Um, yep, it's definitely in the thick of it for sure. A um, couple comments um, we got already in the uh, in our comments today from Emily. Uh, that's uh, thank you, Emily, for joining. Thanks for everybody, kind of who is on the uh, show right now. Uh, Emily says about concerns: row dying equals LGBTQ plus rights dying. Yes, I'm actually going to get into that. A little analysis from Ian Milheiser today. Um, also, you know, talk about marriage rights. Yes, absolutely. The Dems are not responding. Um, all means democracy dying. Emily, I think this show today is going to be right in your lane. Um, besides, of course, women are essentially living under Sharia law and American style, she says. And as with anything else, it targets human rights. It's the poor and working class who will suffer the most. 100%. Um, you know, I, I sent out this, uh, I put out a tweet the other day, um, about um let me see if i can just get to it real quick there was um a, a segment on um sorry there was a segment on the majority report this week that was absolutely fantastic um let me just get to let me get to it and i'll give you it right now i don't want to give you i will put it in the uh the link for today's show if i can come up with it fairly quickly Please, please, please. Come on, come on. You can do it. I know how incredibly engaging this is right now for you to be hearing me. Uh, just do this. Oh, my gosh. This was here. Yes. Okay. So um, 
the uh, uh, Kiara M. Bridges is a, a law professor at Berkeley Law, and she was on the Majority Report today. Uh, or I'm sorry, she's on Majority Report uh, Wednesday, I believe. And um, it was an absolute fantastic show. And I think it hits a lot of the issues that Emily was just bringing up here. Um, and, uh, you know, look, I think I'm going to put the I'm going to put the link to the tweet in today's show. Here's um, this is key Kiara Briggs or Bridges. I'm sorry that it was Bridges Briggs on Majority Report. Um, <clears throat> I will do my best uh, for those folks who are listening to the podcast. I'll do my best, uh, best to remember to try to put this in the uh, show notes today too, as well. Um, I did drop it into chat. Um, if you were going to check it out on YouTube, um, that so I did give a link to the um, the tweet that I put out. But basically, she goes through exactly this, and she says, you know, look, we have to we have to understand right from the get go is that like like rich, right, white women. Right. Or just rich women in general, but, you know, especially rich white women are not going to have a problem here. They can fly off to Europe. They could go to Canada. They can kind of get their kind of like special doctor that will come in and they can pay to kind of. do. I mean, so that's not going to be the issue. Like always. Right. The people who are going to pay the price. Right. Are going to be like from like the poor and working class the most. And that's going to be most significant impact. Right. Um, and what um, Kiara uh, Bridges does, too, as well. And that she also talks about some of the, the, the long history of kind of what out of which this all, this all emerged. Right. This kind of push against abortion rights. And wouldn't you know it? Surprise, surprise. Um, a lot of that has to is connected to the same people that, you know, were kind of uh, looking to keep slavery legal in the South and then wanted to keep Jim Crow laws and then wanted to be able to suppress the black vote. Right. Um, these are the same people. And it's very much connected to, as you would expect, if we've been paying close attention to kind of white patriarchy, white supremacy, which are all kind of in part of the same thing. Right. Yes, this is specifically about the control of women's bodies, but that is an integral component to the control of black bodies and brown bodies, too, as well. Um, this is a, uh, you know, it's been a horrific thing. So do check that out, too, as well. Um, so. I got it. There's, there's, I know I'm I'm trying my best to not go like crazy long today because um, I know uh, sometimes I can have the tendency to, to dive into stuff and not be able to get out of it. Um, but I do. There are a couple things I wanted to do. Um, you know, I've been reading through this uh, this little report here, uh, not report, but this is the leaked um, document uh, from the Supreme Court, the draft opinion uh, from Samuel Alito that will effectively, well, not effectively, if this is the this is the logic that goes forward, it will overturn Roe v. Wade. It's explicit about it in here, right? He says, right at the kind of uh, one point, we hold, you know, this is on page five of the draft opinion. We hold that Roe and Casey and Casey, those are the two key cases that Roe and Casey must be overruled. This is unambiguous, right? So up until now. Right. The 40 year Republican Party march has been a slow eating away, 
of you know of of the right of abortion rights right the slow eating away of abortion rights and little by little there's been more restrictions there's been harder to get access to abortion we saw especially after the the latest round of conservative justices um that were appointed under trump um uh rbg's death um and then that being replaced by far right <laughs> amy coney parrot was unbelievable we know that it's just only gotten worse right so they were they moved quickly well look let, let's be clear the entire right wing legal infrastructure got moving quickly let's be clear um i am not one to entertain this argument that you know this is now trump's party what nancy pelosi was saying this week this is the party of trump this is the republican party this has been the republican party for almost 50 years this is not new. The only thing that Trump did is he accelerated the discourse, he broke the norms, and he tore the mask off. That's all. He walked into the suit that the Republican Party had prepared. Now, the Republicans can scoff all they want about his, like, his behavior and the way he conducted himself. They, everything in this decision that Alito wrote, right, has been what the Republican Party has been wanting for decades. Let's be 100% clear about this. And if, and if, look, I'll give you one example. In the, in the Pennsylvania first district, right, this is Brian Fitzpatrick. Brian Fitzpatrick, you know, and his kind of like, you know, Fitzpatrick machine, you know, his brother, Mike Fitzpatrick, ran it before then. Mike Fitzpatrick died. Brian Fitzpatrick is now the person who's running it. And when he was asked about his position on abortion rights, he dodged the question. They don't want to talk about it. Right? He's got this mantle that he puts on, right? The kind of PR machine to make him, oh, he's a moderate. He considered It's bullshit. It's bullshit. Susan Collins is now clutching her pearls that like, oh, my God, Brett Kavanaugh lied to me. Oh, are you kidding me? Everybody knew he was lying to you. It's a facade she puts on so that she could wear the mantle of moderation. If you are a Republican and you are not coming out strongly against this ruling, and you are not committing right now to protect abortion rights, you are in the same camp as the radical right wing. You are in the same camp as the extremists. You are in the same camp as the insurrectionists. You are in the same camp as Donald Trump. You are in the same camp as all this extremism that we so goes on. The same people who've been playing footsie with the racist for the last decades. Well, they've never stopped really, right? The same people who have been playing footsie with them because they know that they'll carry out the extremes so that they can feel like the moderates. No, look, all bets are off now. That's what we know now. If we had a country that actually gave a shit about properly educating its populace about what's required in a democracy, 
by funding real education, by having people that weren't so desperate in their working lives that they couldn't pay attention to what's going on and think about participating in self-determination. If we actually provided the resources for a democratic culture, we would not be here, but here we are. I, I'm just, I just like, let me get back to the opinion. So what Alito does in this piece, and this is, this was very instructive for me. I kind of, I, I, I took some time I, and I'll, I'll tell you right now, I'm not all the way through the opinion. I mean, um, I'm not, I am about two thirds of the way through. Um, but what was, what's instructive to me about looking at this is I'm, I was reading it with a couple things in mind. Like one, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in how they're making this case because to try to understand the pathway that they're making here in, in hopes of kind of, okay, this is the kind of narrative that they're trying to tell and how do we fight that, fight that particular kind of narrative? How do I kind of think about talking about this? How, um, what are the ways that we need to kind of poke holes in this kind of stuff just in terms of talking to people, right? Um, and look, here's what you got to understand from my perspective, okay? When Alito writes this opinion, it is the way he's written this opinion, it is, it's the, it's written in such a way that mainstream news outlets will pick this up and say, oh, everybody is calling this super extreme, but he doesn't sound very extreme in here. Let's look at this and let's look at the arguments that he's making. And, oh, this is just a different argument. They're going to try to turn this into this both siderism thing. Well, this is just a counter legal thing. And and why do I say that? Like, you know, one of the things I teach writing, right? I teach research, I teach research writing and things like this. And one of the things that we always talk about in terms of disinformation, we're doing that kind of um, kind of analysis or how to evaluate sources, right? Is to say, you know, a lot of times when you think about evaluating a source, you know, you're looking for, say, you know, extreme bias or misinformation or kind of uh, misleading stuff, all that kind of stuff. You know, most things we all know about, right? But the things that are overtly biased, those are easy to detect, right? The real trick, right? And the right wing is is brilliant at this. The real trick, if you want to pull the wool over somebody's eyes is to use the form of rationality and reason and documentation and citation. You're going to use that form and the tone of objectivity, the tone of, you know, rational rationality, the tone of the enlightenment. You're going to use all those cues to make it sound reasonable you're going to make it look reasonable and it's going to look objective, right? Or at least it's going to look well-informed. And that's what this opinion does, right? If I don't know a lot about the Supreme Court, if I don't know a lot about legal history, if I don't know a lot about this stuff, I could read this and halfway through start to kind of like, oh, huh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Right. And raise doubts in our own minds 
about, well, maybe, maybe he's got a point about this. And I didn't realize that this is how laws, and it's like, that's what happens, right? Rachel Reedner and I, we wrote this book together, right? Um, Democracies to Come, it's called. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's an older book now. It's like 2009 or something like that, 2008. I can't remember. But we had, um, and in, in that book, there's this one thing we talk about, right? We call these kind of the cycles of despair. And the cycles of despair is that the, the way that it the way that it works and watch what's happening right now in the media. And I guarantee you'll be able to spot this cycle is that something happens in this case, this draft opinion drops. Right. So that's our that's our kind of exigence. That's our kind of beginning. That's what kind of sets off sets this cycle off in motion. And people people rightfully. Right. Are outraged. Right. They're effectively outraged right that protests erupt right organizing erupts people are pointing out about this is you know everything that we've seen this past week right and again yet i'm not talking everybody right because there's those people right the minority of people in this country right who uh, who elected on with minority votes (laughs) people to the supreme court of the presidency right Anyways, the majority of people are like, and, you know, the majority, and look, the majority of Americans, number one, are women, right? The majority opinion, right, and all polling shows this, is that people are in favor of abortion rights. Even people who personally, right, if you ask them, there's some really good Rebecca Tracer made this uh, point the other night on uh, the Chris Hayes show. She basically said, look, when we got better polling, right, better at asking questions about what people actually prefer, we saw something change in terms of what the support uh, for abortion rights. The first thing was, um, instead of just asking people if they were for abortion, right, they asked different kinds of questions. They said, okay, are you personally for abortion, right? And on that question, it's more evenly split, right? It's a more evenly split kind of thing because you're asking somebody about their personal beliefs, right? And so you could have somebody who's saying like, personally, right? If I got pregnant accidentally, and generally they're not thinking about rape, they're generally not thinking about incest, they're thinking if they personally were having sex with somebody, and got pregnant and they didn't want it, what would they do? Are you in favor of abortion in that case? That's usually what people are thinking about when you ask them, are you personally in favor of abortion, right? And that's even more evenly split. However, if you ask people, do you think we should protect abortion rights? Do you think abortion should be legal, right? All that kind of stuff then people are answering in favor of that. Yes, it should be legal by upwards of 70%. It varies slightly, but it's in the high 60s, 70s percentiles. What does that tell you? It tells you that people, when thinking about themselves, are trying to think about, okay, where their values come down, right? But they see that. People are smart enough to know that that is them. But when they're asking about what will other people, should they have access to that, 
Or should that be open? If something were to happen, then, no, of course. Of course it should be legal and safe. Of course. Right? So people know this stuff. So the point is, that's the values, right? People have these values. People are going to react and are going to be outraged. And then what happens is that, again, you can imagine this process, right? Now we're gearing up to argue. We're gearing up to fight back. We're gearing up to do to, to kind of investigate, right? So what do we do? We go out. Yes, we organize. You know, as activists, we organize. We kind of go out. We, we kind of have protests. We um, write letters, right? We do a whole range of things. We contact our Congress people. We contact our state lep- our representatives right across the board. Right. And then we're going to learn more. And people who are not as informed, they start to learn more. Right. And they do things like I'm just doing right now. They get into this opinion because they want to analyze it. They want to kind of like think that and develop arguments against what's being argued. Right. Now, here's the trick. This is the trick that those in power play on us all the time. Right. Especially the, the right wing is just masterful at it. What they do at that point is that instead of arguing about, you know, religious from the position of religious fundamentalism, although we know that's what motivates so much of it, right? Instead of arguing from that and saying everybody needs to kind of worship God and, and women need to be subordinate to men, they don't say that. They do make opinions like this. And so a person who is raised in a culture to think about, to weigh the pros and the cons, the either and the ors, and try to kind of look at the stuff... And, and how do you recognize that? Well, you look for, are their sources documented? Do they sound reasonable? Do they sound extreme? And no, I pick up Alito's thing and I read it. And if I don't know the background or the history of it, it sounds reasonable and rational. So what does that do? That boom, that creates doubt. I'm still angry. But I start to doubt that I'm able to say that Alito is just some right-wing lunatic, Right. I start to buy into the narrative that we hear on TV from some of these freaking media personnel. Well, Alito just has to have, he has a different kind of tradition. He comes out of this originalist tradition, blah, 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 blah. As if that has any freaking reality basis whatsoever. Or they don't talk about what that actually means, which I'm going to get into in a second, right? So then you start to have doubt. And because those in power and the right-wing media infrastructure can dominate that conversation... It, the harder it is to maintain one's own position by providing counter-rational arguments. The goal of that, right, and the right, right-wing media infrastructure is to, is to flood the zone with these kind of ra- quote-unquote rational counter-arguments or arguments for their extreme positions, Flood the zone, so every angle from there, so we know the most popular, right, the most watched news is Fox News, and that's where they're going to see it, no matter what what, what station or what, so what time of the day they're watching, what program they're watching, they're going to get the same message, right? All the Republicans are coordinating behind this message. We saw this with Mitch McConnell this week. And they are also not going out saying, may God come down and lash. No, they're not doing that. Right? What are they doing? It's like, well, the leaker is a problem and this is our process and we have to... they sound rational because they know their positions are unpopular. So what do they do? They come out and do this, and that raises doubts in people, especially people who are not paying close attention to politics, which is the majority of American people. 
And this is not to blame the American people. This is what I said at the beginning. We live in a culture that does not provide sustenance for democracy and informed citizenry. We do not. So that's the game. And once I have those doubts and I begin questioning and all this stuff, I'm stuck with this conflict. The conflict between my feelings of outrage because I'm watching what has just happened. I'm watching what has just happened and my values tell me that this is an outrage. That women are being regulated to second-class citizens. That we are taking one more step on the pathway to the handmaid's tale, right? And I'm angry. My stomach is upset. I'm I'm furious. And yet everything else is telling me that I'm crazy or I'm not being rational. And that if I can't muster and find the resources to kind of have those counter arguments, you know what happens? I try to find a way to say, hey, look, I'm still having this outrage. These feelings are good because my values matter. And I believe my values are good. But maybe I'm wrong about this. What do I say? So then I use words like this. Unfortunately. And it's usually followed something like there's nothing we can do. Right? Or unfortunately, that's the way it is. Or unfortunately, and Margaret Thatcher's favorite term of, you know, famous terms, there is no alternative. And so what fills that space between and that conflict? Despair. And if I'm despair, I don't act. And if I don't act, the cycle continues. Right? You can map it out. This happens over and over again. And Republicans are great about it. Democrats still believe that you just you throw facts out and then that's going to make, make magic happen. Or that hypocrisy, calling out hypocrisy is going to do anything. It's not. Calling out hypocrisy is like at best a place to begin. But it depends on your opponent's vulnerability to shame. And if your opponent does not give a shit and is not shamed, you are toothless. This should be the basic political analysis of anybody on the center left to the left. If you don't start from that place, you need another occupation. Period. So what is the what what happens with despair? What's the alternative? What is their alternative, right? Well, look, activists already know this, right? We know what it is. It's organizing. It's being together. It's not being isolated. It's finding other people, whether it's in spaces like this, right? But more importantly, it's spaces in organizations, right? And on the streets. 
and not protest for protest's sake, but protest to organize. It is to be unequivocal in a commitment to say we and we're going to say words like abortion, not like reproductive rights. We're not going to use let's it's time time enough to put that crap away. We we need to protect women's health. No, you we're talking about abortion here. So let's use the words. How about that? Democrats who are supposedly the protectors of this have walked away from that. And they have left all of us impoverished in our political discourse because of it. Because they refuse to, or, to act like a party. They contract out all their work. The hopeful side of that is that progressives, a new generation of folks have are emerging. We're seeing it all over here in Pennsylvania. We're seeing it kind of nationally, although slowly, some more slowly. But the Democratic Party leadership, the freaking octogenarian rulers, need to get the hell out of the way. And they need to welcome those other people with open arms or just get the hell out of the way. <laughs> right? Because they're stuck in some freaking fantasy land that does not comport to what we need right now. Sorry. We saw that in Bucks County, right? The head of the Bucks County Dems thought, oh, it's a good idea to get together with Jim Worthington, the guy who funded buses to go to the to, to go to the January 6th uh, uh, anti, anti-Biden or, or election fraud rally. Hey, that's a great idea to hold hands and show everybody bipartisanship. Like somehow in his brain, that was a good idea. In what world is that a good idea? And activists in, not even just activists, right? But kind of like like rank and file Democrats in the county were like, what the hell are you doing? And eventually he had to cancel and he had to make some kind of poor excuse. And he had to, but he had to kind of claim a little bit of victimhood. Like, oh, you know, people were really upset. And now he's, now he's stepped down. Now he's no longer going to be the head of the uh, Bucks County Democrats. Thank God. But let's, how about this? Let's not put another freaking octogenarian or another kind of like, you know, like rich white guy in that job. How about that? Or let's also not put somebody in that job that is basically steeped in the rotten stew of moderation. How about that? Anyways, I was not even planning on talking about all that stuff I just said right now. <laughs> but you know, here here we are. But here's I I you know, I was gonna I was gonna say go through some of the stuff on the Supreme Court opinion, but you know, I, I did some of the stuff on Twitter and here's the bait here's the baseline of what I want what I want to say. Okay. So instead of instead of going through and reading the specifics and do the analysis like I was what I originally had planned to do, um, I want to say a couple things. So there's the opinion so what I've read so far, right? Uh, right now, he's going through uh, where I am, and they're go- he's going through point by point about uh, what was wrong about the road decision, um, kind of eventually. But in order to set it up, right, what, there's like the first first kind of third or so of the of the opinion is really focused on the way we make decisions, right? Not uh, uh, where the way that the court makes decisions. 
right? And how it's based on it. And he's he's basically telling us a narrative about the way it is, okay? And it's very instructive if you're kind of interested in kind of, well, what is this originalist position that that is out there, right? So what there's like, there's, on the one hand, you've got the constitution. On the other hand, you've got legal precedent, right? And legal precedent is supposed to provide a kind of path, right? For which we make decisions that we look back, we say, well, there's precedent for this. This is consistent in terms of law. If something is not spelled out in the constitution, right? If it is something that doesn't have kind of precedent and you're asking about whether a particular right is protected or so on like this, the other alternative, right? Is to look at common law. Right. It's this kind of notion of history and tradition. Let me see if I can find it real quick about the um, here you go. So this goes back to this uh, to this one argument. But basically, he says. Talk about due process clause or the different clause, but they made clear this is one of the things he points to is that um, that. In this case, this Glucksberg case, right, the report, it held due process clause does not confirm a right on assisted suicide. The court surveyed more than 700 years of, quote, Anglo-American common law tradition, unquote, and made clear that a fundamental right must be, quote, objectively deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, unquote. Right. So. That's just saying, if it's not specifically spelled out in the Constitution, then it has to be that, right? It has to, if you have to look back over these histories and you have to find to see if it's rooted in the hist- objectively rooted in the histories and traditions, um, this nation's histories and traditions. And then that goes back to um, kind of English common law, right? And then it goes to kind of like the colonies common law and things like this, right? So that's why he spends all this time going through common law, Okay. And what's and he does this in terms of talking about what what liberty means and then goes into the history of common law or the history of the uh, of legal cases that were made uh, around abortion. And instead of finding that there is a fundamental right, as in we find with Roe in terms of privacy, he finds that there is no fundamental right to abortion. And matter of fact, this nation's histories and traditions have shown a consistent pattern of treating abortion as a crime and treating a fetus as a life. Okay? And that's the tradition that he pulls through. And there's people that are far better than I am, right, that kind of know how to kind of read that tradition. That's why I check out that um, um, that piece in the Majority Report. Um, it's really, really excellent. Kiara Bridges does an amazing job of unpacking that. Packing that. Um, Ian Milheiser has been doing a fantastic job over at Vox, really kind of unpacking this stuff. I suggest you go read them. I'll do my best to remember to put those also in today's show notes. We're going to hear a little bit of Ian Milheiser in a second. Right. But that's the basis of this. So and if you follow him down that path. Right. And you don't know that there's alternative paths. Right. But if you follow down the path, it begins to sound like a reasonable argument. Right. And that is what the right wing is going to stake its claims on. Right. Now. Million dollar question, everybody. What's the problem with that? What's the problem with looking at 700 years of this nation's history and traditions and its common law and cases from the 1300s, from the 1600s, from the 1700s, and to see how they treated abortion? It's what history is, right? 
It is not. If I am only interested in what the written history was, Alito does a decent job here, and I'm sure that there's other scholars that are going to poke holes in everything that he says here, but that he does a job of kind of providing some of that history. So you can see how this was uh, abortion was treated in through the select cases that he picks out, right? And even if we were to grant him that he's not just selectively cherry picking stuff, but this actually does represent a fairly accurate picture of the way that abortion was treated at these different times in common law. The one glaring problem is that this is law, this is common law, that was made by white men of property and they were ruling about women when women had no access to deliberation and making the laws under which they have to live. It is the history of white male propertied men. Okay? So when I'm looking at a decision from, let's see, So here's this was this was one of my favorite. So he points to this thing called quickening, right? It's and it's basically way the way that say I guess doctors would refer to the fact like when the baby starts kicking, right? Or you can feel it moving, they call that quickening, I guess, back in the whatever, thirteen hundreds or seventeen hundreds. Um, and he picks out this case, right? And I'll just read this paragraph for you to give you one example of this. So although a pre quick quickening abortion was not itself considered a homicide. It does not follow that abortion was permissible at common law, much less that abortion was a legal right. Quite to the contrary, in the 1732 case mentioned above, the judge said of the charge of abortion, with no mention of quickening, that he had, quote, never met with a case so barbarous and unnatural, unquote. Similarly, an indictment, uh, indictment, I'm sorry, indictment, I guess, from 1602, which did not distinguish between a pre-quickening and a post-quickening abortion, described abortion as, quote, pernicious and, quote, against the peace of Our Lady the Queen, her crown and dignity. That the common law did not condone even pre-quickening abortions is confirmed by what might be called proto-felony murder rule, <laughs> right? So that's the kind of crap that he's basing this on. And this is when men, white men of privilege and power and property, made the rules under which everyone else had to live. Women did not get the right to vote until when? 1920, right? So what Alito is telling us is that the only way that we are allowed to see our situations today, that women are allowed to see their situations today, is from the gaze of a white, propertied man. 
It doesn't matter that they had no right to participate in the legal process in terms of writing the laws. They had no representation. Right? That's what he's saying. So my reading tip for you is that every time, if you read this opinion, every time that you see the word common law, you should insert white male, propertied white male, or white patriarchy, or white supremacist patriarchy. The white male supremacist <laughs> common law, right? What they saw as the law by which to rule. That's what we're talking about. That's what his position is showing. And trying to trick us into saying that like, oh, I guess this is just the way it is. No, the document is flawed. The legal tradition is flawed. At the very basis, and let's be clear, it wasn't just, as I said, white supremacist patriarchy. That's what we're talking about. The gaze of those people at the top in white supremacist patriarchy. That's what we're talking about. Alito wants us to swallow their narrative. Now, the, the very basis is not only did women not have the right to vote, in many cases, they were considered, in most cases, initially, at least were considered property of the man, especially under marriage. And let's not forget, oh, yeah, we had this little thing called slavery in this country. Other folks were completely excluded from writing the laws under which they had to live. That The tenet of democracy, right, is that it's the people rule. And if there are people who are living under the jurisdiction of a particular country or state or whatever it means, and they have been excluded from the determination process, the deliberation process, the writing of the laws under which they live, that is an illegitimate law. Because it does not represent the people. It selectively takes out a group of people and says they get to do it. And that everyone else has to be subjected to their rule. That's what this is. At the very, the very minimum, We cannot even start, we cannot even start to talk about legitimate law in this country until after the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And I would argue that's not even sufficient. Right? Emily writes, yes, that's why we're a republic and not a democracy. Same thing applies, though. Even in a republic, right? In a republic, you are ceding your, you're ceding your deliberative process, right? So you're not doing it directly. You're electing representatives to do it for you, right? But if you do not have an, even a say 
into who gets to be a representative, <laughs> right? If you can't even vote to elect your representative, it's the same process. If you are excluded from running for office because of your gender, because of your race, because of your sexuality, right? Same thing applies. You do not have the right to choose a representative that is reflective of what your desires are. Right? There we go. And that's what it is. So when you're reading that opinion, when you're looking at that opinion, know that. And this has a bunch of consequences for all of us, folks. Because it asked us to take a really serious look at the way that we talk about the Constitution. It's like, this is where, you know, Democrats have failed. Democrats have failed because what they have done is they try to basically have, basically, I would say, subcontracted out politics to different institutions and different groups. So do you remember Nancy Pelosi? Nancy Pelosi was chastising the media at one point. I, I can't remember right now what it was about. I, I don't, I, I'm pretty sure it was about, about, it was either about the insurrection or about impeachment. It was one or the other. And she was being asked, well, what's the argument? What are you going to do? You know, basically saying, make the case. Well, do you have evidence? I mean, basically doing people were at reporters were asking her reporters questions, right? And she said to them at one point, that's your job. Go out and find it. That's your job. And like, you're like, you're the democratic leader in the house. It is not the media's job to make the case against Trump or for an insurrection. I'm sorry. I wish it were. <laughs> well, some media is. But if you want the media, look, if you want the media to report a particular narrative or particular political, but guess what you got to do? You got to articulate it. <laughs> and not just like, oh my gosh, norms have been upset. Why is that a problem? Throwing your hands up in the air and complaining and outrage does not get the job done. You have to do politics, which means you have to organize, which you have to mean to make the case. You have to call people out. Freaking Republicans do this masterfully all the time. And still, if you watch how many times you get a Democrat who comes on, on a major kind of like cable news show or media show or NPR, whatever it means, how many times when they're asked a question by a reporter, they're saying like, well, like, why is this a problem? Like, you know, well, you know, isn't there a divide over Roe v. Wade or abortion in this country? Right. Very often they start their sentences like this. Even the majority of Republicans think this. What? They start by asking the media to look at the Republicans. They're basically ceding the initiative in their sentences to the Republicans. They'll spend all this time to point to Lynn Cheney, 
And like, oh, look at her. She's doing what a Republican should do. How many times has Nancy Pelosi said, we need a strong Republican Party, pleading with them? Right? And like, for people like me, I start to lose my mind when I hear that stuff. Because what you're saying is that the only thing that you can do as a Democratic Party is hope that the Republican Party behaves, but that you are powerless to do anything. And it's just, it's just, it's, this is why Democratic Party leadership need to go. We need to primary these people and get them the hell out. I want to turn to a piece that um, Rebecca Traster wrote this week. Um, it's in the cut. It's in the kind of New York Magazine, I believe. Um, it's the cut. She just writes great stuff over here. So I'm, I'm going to read a little bit of it here. So her piece is uh, Democratic leaders are getting the abortion story wrong again. So this is right after right after the opinion drops, right? Rebecca Tracer writes, but as millions reeled on Monday night, the top leadership in the Democratic Party could only generate words that ultimately felt bloodless. In a joint message, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schubert called the draft, quote, an abomination, one of the worst and most damaging decisions in modern history, unquote, yet still could not bring themselves to use the word abortion. They said, quote, the party of Lincoln and Eisenhower has now completely devolved into the party of Trump, unquote, and seemed to revel in the fact that every Republican senator who voted for Trump's justices, quote, will now have to explain themselves to the American people, unquote, as if this would provide any comfort to those who are apparently on the brink of losing a right that has been protected for 50 years. There's a perfect example. Oh, the Republicans are going to get it now. Now the chickens are going to come home to roost for them. Now they have to answer the American people. No, they don't. You know why? Because they've gerrymandered state legislatures, right? They've, 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 they've gerrymandered districts all over the country so that the majority is no longer represented in Congress, right? So she goes on. Joe Biden waited until 930 Tuesday morning to publicly weigh in with a statement that was also allergic to the word abortion, mentioning it only once four paragraphs down. Biden made pleas to basic fairness and, quote, the stability for our law, unquote, concluding with a message that it was on voters to elect pro-choice officials this November, unquote. And then she says, sir, we elected you. And you didn't get out of bed to speak to the American people the night this devastating document leaked. And it was not just that the party leadership gave us anemic utterances when they should have treated the leak as the emergency that is with siren emoji. It was that they got the story wrong, just as they have gotten the story wrong for decades. She writes, Schumer and Pelosi's bizarre assertion that this looming rollback of lights was emblematic of the party of Trump is profoundly ahistorical, and this is key. The overturn of Roe, whatever form it takes, will not be the product of the party of Trump. It is the party of Ronald Reagan, who came to power in 1980 on a platform that included a human life amendment. 
It is the party of George H.W. Bush who flipped on his previous support for abortion rights to become Reagan's vice president and eventually his successor to the White House. It's the party that put Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito on the bench. It is the party that stole a Supreme Court seat from a president who was elected by a majority of voters and that used the Electoral College and the Supreme Court itself to ensure the White House was occupied by Republican presidents who had lost the popular vote but could nonetheless appoint justices who had been grown in a federal society lab to strike down freedoms supported by American, a majority of uh, Americans. So no, where America finds itself is not the world transformed by Donald Trump. Rather, it's one in which generations of Republicans have been open about their brutal aim, while Democratic leaders have repeatedly asked voters to trust them in a fight that up until the very night Roe was struck down in draft form, they refused to accurately describe or perhaps even discern. That communicative failure points to one of the ways that Democratic leadership has been repeatedly outstripped by their opposition. Yes, the right has strategized on a local level, manipulated systems more cannily, and invested patiently, building their power over years, while Democrats have gone for short-term plays. But what the right also has been far better is at telling stories. So much so, uh, uh, so much of their power has been built on a compelling narrative. Racist parables, xenophobic tall tales, sexist fables pulled from the ether fictions that they have committed to with every fiber of the regressive and punitive hearts and sold with a gusto to the American public. Rhetorically, Democrats have had their lunch money stolen repeatedly by these fanatics, uh, fanaticists. In part because while Republicans could could commit to their bit with the, the, the oh, sorry the, theatrical force, the left has been unwilling to embrace the real nonfiction moral urgency of their cause. The narrative material, the compelling claim on the hearts and minds of voters who want more justice and more equality has been sitting right there for Democrats this whole time. And unlike the right wing stories, this narrative has the benefit of being true. How I write to abortion is fundamental to human and familial flourishing, to dignity and economic security, to health and love and happiness and thriving. Boom. There's more, but I'm going to stop there. <laughs> Rebecca Traster is... Someone that everybody should be reading if you're not reading her already. She has been writing about this for so long. I mean, over the past five years, she has been sounding the alarm on this, as she had been doing before then. And she's not the only one. Look, I don't, I don't want to kind of just say like, hey, everybody, like, let's go to our new celebrity, Rebecca Traster, so that we can just kind of like follow her everywhere. No, she's not the only one. She does happen to do it exceptionally well, in my opinion. But activists, Planned Parenthood, NARAL, organizations have been yelling about this for a long time. And what Rebecca Traster will tell you over and over again is more often than not, when people like her, when abortion rights activists have gone to the Democratic Party and said, we need to be defending these rights, that they're about to be, that our, these rights are going to be taken away. They've been told that they're overreacting. 
they've been called hysterical by Democratic Party consultants, not Republicans, Democratic Party consultants. They have been told, we have been told, that we can't mention abortion in our purple districts because it's such a hot-button issue. If it's such a hot-button issue, and if the Democratic Party is supposedly to be the ones who are championing abortion rights, then we better damn well have a position to argue from. Not using dog whistle language about women's health care. No, we need to say we are arguing for abortion rights. And break that, break the glass, right, on these kind of cultural warnings that we have been taught to obey, but that have not served us. I woke up on Tuesday morning. I, I teach early on Tuesdays. And one of the things I do, I get up at like, you know, I don't know, quarter after four or something like this. I make my kids lunches, um, get things kind of ready for the day. Any kind of dishes that need to be cleaned up, I finish doing my dishes, um, you know, clean up around the house, all that kind of stuff, get my stuff together, and then I go. But always before, you know, I wake my son up. You know, I'm usually leaving. I leave like between 6 and 6.30 um, usually. Um, make sure my son's out of bed by by six, my daughter a little bit afterwards, and, uh, you know, wish him a good day, all that kind of stuff, right? You know, I mean, that, you know, parents do. And I went in, you know, my daughter is 10, and I went in and uh, I said, hey, you know, what, told her what time it was. It's time we get up. I got to go to work. Okay, I just want to let you know. And I kissed her goodbye, and uh, I just got a pit in my stomach. And it, and it, and it, and it, I have to say, it bothers the hell out of me that that pit in my stomach wasn't as stark as it was Tuesday, that it wasn't as painful in my body before this opinion dropped. I mean, look, I mean, I, I, what I'm saying right now is not a, a new position for me, okay? <laughs> um, but that visceral feeling, the last time I felt that is, what, is waking up the morning when Donald Trump was elected and watch my daughter and my wife crumble. And I remember my wife said it right there. She, I mean, again, she wasn't the only woman who said this, but certainly she was there. She felt like I have been regulated to a second-class person. Yep. 100%. And, you know, obviously it was uh, Trump's election was one of those moments. You feel it in the pit of your stomach. I felt it in the pit of my stomach. I'll speak for myself. Here it is again. So there's two two other things I want to do, and I I'll, I was um, I think this is this is going to be kind of important going on. So I mean, 
one of the things that I didn't talk about in the opinion itself, um, but Alito goes through a series of cases in there, which basically I think uh, Emma Viglin on the Majority Report the other day uh, said it correctly. She said, uh, you know, Alito has basically provided a roadmap um, for the rights to go after next. He names the cases, he names the issues, right? And it's very similar to what Emily was saying uh, early on in the, uh, you know, in the chat today. But so, this is uh, from Ian Milheiser from Vox. Um, so I'll, I'll skip that a little bit. So if this opinion, this draft opinion holds, the ruling would put decisions on abortion access back in the hands of the states and reverse half a century of jurisprudence. Already, lawmakers at the state and federal level have been scrambling to respond to the court's anticipated decision, which will result in a fragmented abortion access across the country. In 18 states, there are trigger laws or pre-existing bans which would bar all or nearly all abortions soon after the decision comes down. In other places, abortion access isn't poised to change. That's all contributing to uncertainty about what happens next. Here's what to expect from the courts, from the states, and from Democrats and Republicans. We skip down a little bit. What happens to pregnant people if Roe is struck down? In short, abortion rights will contract rapidly. At least 18 states have a total and near total abortion bans on the books right now. Michigan, there was a, I heard a story about Michigan this morning. Uh, the details of these laws vary. Some of these laws contain narrow exceptions to protect individuals who need an abortion to save their life or to avoid a permanent disability. But for example, not all contain exceptions for the non-life-threatening medical conditions. And while some take effect right away once Roe is struck down, others will, be, will take days or weeks to go into effect. But by the end of the summer, nearly all abortions will be illegal in around 18 states. Four other states have laws banning abortion after the sixth week of pregnancy before many people are even aware they are pregnant. Let me skip down a little bit. Republicans celebrate, cautiously brace for political impact, and plot their next moves. Republicans have been cautious to claim victory based upon the opinion's draft status, but have celebrated the prospect of Supreme Court's overturning Roe. If this report is true, quote, it is nothing short of a massive victory for life and will save thousands of millions of innocent babies, says Texas Senator Tex, uh, Ted Cruz, the little fascist he, who tweeted on Monday. They have been more straightforward in expressing outrage at the unprecedented leak of the draft. We know that the lawless action should be investigated and punished, what McConnell has said. Democratic denouncements of the leak might be an attempt to divert attention from material consequences of their decision, which many of them recognize might not play in their favor heading into the midterms. While GOP candidates now tout their party's ability to deliver on their long-running campaign promises on abortion, it's equally plausible the decision will energize Democratic voters, potentially. Where is going on here? This is not the one I want. Oh, here we go. This is the one I want. I'm sorry. That, that's that's really good. And he talks about some of the things that Democrats can do. This is the one that I really wanted to do. Um, let me see this part. I'm sorry. I started reading from the wrong one. I'm just a little bit out of it.
So here, I'll give you a little taste of it. Um, it's a little bit dense in parts. So I'll start from here. So this is in if Roe v. Wade fails, are um, uh, LGBTQ rights next? So he says a little bit further down, the Constitution is a frustrating document, and among other things, it contains multiple provisions stating that Americans enjoy certain civil rights that are not mentioned anywhere in the document itself. The Ninth Amendment, for example, provides that, quote, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage other retained by the people, unquote. Over time, the Supreme Court has devised multiple standards to determine which of those enumerated rights are nonetheless protected by our founding document. Some of these standards are very much at odds with each other. The central thrust of Alito's draft opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's, that's the one we're talking about, Jackson Women's Health Organization, um, the case seeking to overrule, overrule Roe, is, is that only rights that are, quote, deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, quote, and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty are protected. This method of weighing uh, unenumerated rights is often referred to as the Glucksberg test after the court's decision in Washington v. Glucksberg, what I was talking about before. Although Alito's Dobbs um, opinion largely focused on why he believes the right of abortion fails the Glucksberg test, there is no doubt that he also believes that other important rights, such as same-sex couples' right to marry, also fail Glucksburg and are thus unprotected by the Constitution. Alito said as much in his Oberfeld um, dissent, which said that, quote, it is beyond dispute that the right to same-sex marriage is not among those rights that are enumerated in the Constitution that are sufficiently rooted in American history and tradition. Notably, the majority opinion in Ober, um, Obergefeld, Obergefeld rejected Alito's claim that the that all unenumerated rights flow from Glucksburg. The Glucksburg approach, just as Anthony Kennedy wrote for the court in Ogerfeld, Ogerfeld, I always say that wrong, quote, is inconsistent with the approach this court has used in discussing other fundamental rights, including, including marriage and intimacy, unquote. Alito also has shown no signs that he respects um, Obergefeld. Obergefell, uh, he'll say, uh, as a precedent that should be followed even if he disagrees with it. That said, we do not yet know if Alito has five votes to overrule Obergefell or to attack older precedents such as Lawrence. It is possible that some of the court's other Republicans would join with his three Democrats to preserve marriage equality. Alito's draft opinion, in other words, um, probably should be read as an opening bid to his colleagues. How far will they go uh, with him attacking other rights? Right. So that's the real question. Right. That's what he's trying to kind of see what he can get in here. And in this. Right. We'll go back to the Supreme Court, uh, the draft opinion for a second here. He gives this list. OK, here it is. So what's that opening bid? What are the other rights that Alito is saying in this draft opinion that are also not protected by the Constitution using the same logic that he's using here for abortion. All right. <clears throat> Nor does the right to obtain abortion have a sound basis in precedent. Casey relied on cases involving the right to marry a person of a different race, the right to marry while in prison, the right to obtain contraception, um, the right to uh, reside with relatives, the right to make decisions about the education of one's children, the right not to be sterilized without consent, the right in certain circumstances not to undergo involuntary surgery, forced administration of drugs, or other substantially similar procedures. Respondents in the Solicitor General's Office rely on post-Casey decisions in Lawrence, 
goes on, the right to engage in private non-consexual acts, the right to marry a person of the same sex, right? He lists all these things, and then he says, right, here's all this stuff. Okay, they're using all these things to kind of like justify their opinion in uh, Roe v. Wade, right? Using all these kind of opinions, and the, the case, the Solicitor General in this case, right, that are, are um, arguing to preserve Roe, are drawing upon all these things. And he says, look, none of these rights, the ones that he just said, has any claim to being deeply rooted in history. Right there, page 32. That's the roadmap, right? And I think uh, Milheiser does, does a great job in pointing that out. So look, this is the roadmap. Like, it's not automatic. Now here, if you, if you look at the opinion, right, what Alito is doing is saying that why abortion is special in this case is that he has also used all the kind of, you know, white male supremacist common law arguments to basically sh say that, you know, life has been considered, you know, just just being like like a fetus, right? That that's deeply rooted in the tradition. So therefore, the fetus is a life that should be protected, right? And all, all that kind of stuff, right? All the kind of like, you know, like, I don't know, cellular lifehood, whatever the hell you want to call it, right? And so he's saying that. And so he's saying the one thing that makes this case different, right, um, with this, why this is one we need to overturn now is because you have you have a a a competition between a woman and a fetus. Right. And he wants to see those as equal. Right. And then even more, he wants to see it. Um, he wants to weigh things all on the side of the fetus, right? Where the woman just becomes the vessel um, to sustain this, this, you know, um, giving birth. And then once it's given birth, well, whatever the hell, we can throw it out after that because we obviously the society doesn't give a shit about kids. If we did, we wouldn't let kids starve, right? If we did, we wouldn't have let the child tax credit just kind of expire and throwing all millions of kids back into poverty, right? We all know this. So he sets it up like that to say, well, this is why. But he goes through painstakingly to point those out, list all the cases that they're associated with, and says, look, these are not protected by the Constitution either. Go get them. That's what I have written in the side. That's the kind of like, go get them. Dogs of hell, you are released. So there you go. So, yes, we've got a lot of stuff going on. Now, one of the things that, uh, would I do this? I want to point this out. Um, today at 1.30, uh, I know it's already 12.30 here, but if you're down in Philly, um, today at 1.30 that there is a, um, a rally going on. Let me see. Oh, my God. Uh, there's a rally going on in Philadelphia. This is a women's march on Philadelphia and on Governor Tom Wolf and on Attorney General Josh Shapiro. It's at the Philly Convention Center, Broad Street Atrium at 1.30 today. Um, Senator, um, uh, State Senator Katie Muth is going to be there. Congresswoman Madeline De Dean, State House Democratic Leader Joanna McClinton, uh, Senator Maria Collette, um, Commissioner Valerie, Dr. Valerie Arkush. Um, PA Dems political director, uh, Savanya Corbin Johnson, PA Planned Parenthood director, uh, Signe, I'm going to say the name wrong, um, Espinoza, Signe Espinoza. They will all be there. Um, that is a rally today at Broad and Cherry Streets at 1.30 p.m. in uh, Philadelphia. Um, coming up in Doylestown on Sunday, May 15th. 
um, at the Old Bucks County Courthouse in Doylestown, PA. The time is yet to be announced. Um, that will be forthcoming. We will make sure we get that out to you. Um, but that's not this coming Sunday, right? Um, it's not this coming Sunday, which is Mother's Day, which is the following Sunday. So we're talking May 15th at Old Bucks County Courthouse um, is going to be an abortion rights rally in Doylestown. Um, one of the things if you have one of the things we're going to try to find a way to make sure that we're doing is that if you have uh, um, you know things in Pennsylvania, when different rallies are coming up, you can shoot us an email at uh, raging chicken, uh, raging chicken at gmail.com. Um, you can hit me up on Twitter at, at RC press and we'll make sure we tweet that stuff out and make sure we get the word out to as well. Um, I know other people are going to be posting things too as well, but um, we'll certainly be talking about this. Um, I'll give you any updates, or upcoming rallies that will be coming up on um, coming up after Monday. We'll be back on Monday, obviously, with um, uh, with Jonathan Casa. Um, we'll give some updates then. But man, it's, it's something. I'm telling you, it's something. Um, so, anyways, anyways, anyways. Um, for now, I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to come back, and uh, we're going to have a, uh, I'll have a shorter uh, part two today. But I want to kind of talk a little about something that's happening in Pashi, and um, kind of point us in a direction. And God, I don't know, kind of really pose a question: Is what are we going to do? Okay. Anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, uh, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. We'll be back right after this quick break. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That was the year that 400 black women who worked as tobacco stemmers walked off the job at I. N. Vaughn & Company in Richmond, Virginia. The tobacco industry in the South was highly segregated. The stemmers had to separate the tobacco leaves from the stem by hand. The job paid little with working conditions that were extremely hot, cramped, and demanded long hours. Most of the stemmers were black women. The women found an ally in a new Richmond organization, the Southern Negro Youth Congress. The group was made up of young people who were part of the National Negro Congress, a national organization formed in 1935 to fight discrimination. According to historian Eric Gelman, the National Negro Congress held the belief that justice came from economic power. They emphasized union organizing of black workers. In Richmond, the young organizers of the SNYC began to make contacts with the tobacco stemmers. Out of that effort, the tobacco stemmers laborers and industrial union was forged. Two organizers, Christopher Columbus Alston and James Jackson, helped to lead the work with the stemmers. For many reasons, this unionization effort was indeed remarkable. For one, in the Jim Crow South, it was not expected that black women would organize to form a union. Richmond was also not a town known to be friendly to labor organizations. But despite these challenges, the women compiled a list of demands and presented them to management. Within 48 hours, they had settled the strike, gaining improvements in their working conditions. The women inspired others in Richmond, in Virginia, and beyond. Their fight was not just for better workplaces or higher wages, but also for dignity and respect. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. Hey, welcome back. Welcome back. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, 
want to uh, remind you once again, you can help support this show by going to patreon.com slash rcpress. That's patreon.com slash rcpress. You can become a patron of this show for as little as five bucks a month. Um, your support helps make this possible. Um, we have been expanding. We have been doing new things. We have been um, kind of deepening roots in organizing. We've been building connections with other media in Bucks County to help build whatever we can on our progressive media infrastructure here. Uh, but the only way we can do this is with your support. So um, if you know folks, if you're already a patron, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Um, your support has helped make this possible. Um, but you share it out, right? Encourage other people to become a patron too as well, help support this show. Um, so one of the things I wanted just to talk briefly about is um, this is just, this has been, it's been a week. Uh, you might have seen me posting about this a little bit on uh, on, on my personal, say, Facebook fa uh, Facebook page. Um, but it's been something that's been coming for a long time. And, um, it, it, you know, we're starting to see the fruits of um, Pashi's new policy. Pashi, of course, is the Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education. I teach at Kutztown University, which is part of the State System of Higher Education. Um, and I wanted just to give you a little window into like what happens downstream of really bad austerity policy that we're seeing right now in Pashi, right? Backstory, again, quick refresher, right? Um, the uh, Pennsylvania State Legislature has been bleeding the state system of higher education of, of funds for, well, basically since its founding, since back in 1983, it's continually, continually allowed its commitment to um, higher education to uh, fail um, as it became fashionable both with republicans and with democrats um, not all democrats of course but um the kind of mainstream democrats the basically kind of to slowly defund public institutions and um, turn them over to the private sector or force more of the burden for paying on um, higher education um, onto parents and students um, with the idea that you know Education is not something that is, uh, especially higher education, is not something that is a public good for everyone in the Commonwealth, that everybody should have access to it, that it should be something that we support um, by matter of principle. Instead of it being a public good, it became a private good where we say, oh, if you want to succeed in your personal life, right, then you have to pay for it, right? That's been the arc um, of this. And this is not just higher education, obviously. This is all public services. This has been the, um, the same group that was elected in 1980 with Ronald Reagan, who started their attack on Roe v. Wade and abortion rights has been the same group that has been preaching, pre, uh, preaching austerity, preaching neoliberalism, preaching the defunding of the state, defunding of public goods, shifting everything over to the private sector, handing over to kind of corporate givebacks, shifting the wealth in our country from the broad base of the people to those at the very top. Same story. It's the same group. They're all allied to their interests. Right? Anyways, so as you know, we've been talking about on this show for years, um, but in particular, the past couple of years, the state system of higher education's chancellor's name is um, Dan Greenstein. And Dan Greenstein comes from, you know, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He was uh, ran their higher ed division. And so they brought with their same kind of, you know, um, kind of move fast and break things logic from Silicon Valley. Um, and they went sh literally his own words. He went shopping 
for a place where he can conduct an educational experiment uh, for higher education. And he chose Pennsylvania. And of course, Democrats and Republicans alike lapped it up because they're like, oh my God, Bill Gates, billionaire. Whoops, whoops, whoops sorry about that. Um, Bill Gates, billionaire. We love billionaires, right? That was kind of um, how those things generally work um, because uh, both... For a long time, uh, the Democratic Party kind of mainstream and the uh, Republican mainstream just kind of love rich people, right, and look to them for their expertise because they don't want to have to conduct and do politics on their own. So they look for their, you know, whatever, 21st century kings and queens um, to do it for them. But whatever, I'll put that aside again. Um, so a couple things have happened. One, uh, now he has made a case for... Uh, um, additional funding for Pashi, but he's also said that like, we know that's not coming and we know you can plead all you want for more money, but the Republican dominated legislature is not going to invest in public higher education, right? They're looking to shutting down public higher education. They've openly expressed the desire to shut several universities down or to um, sell them off, right? To make them go private, all that kind of stuff, right? Everything you would expect from Republicans, they've been doing it. So, and because in Pennsylvania, Republicans dominate the legislature, that's not going to happen. Right. Um, and we don't have Demo we really have only a minority of Democrats who really know how to organize and push for this stuff. So there you go. Um, here we are. So Greenstein has done a couple things. Um, and I'm only going to talk about the one, the first, well, two. The first one is the context has been to consolidate several universities, right? As we know, Bloomsburg is being forced together with Lock Haven and uh, Mansfield University in the central to eastern part of the state and for the central western part of the state you've got uh california university uh edinburgh university and Claren university are being forced into another university out there all right and um our faculty union abscuff has been made the case over and over again that you're doing this without dealing with the consequences there's predictable consequences what's going on there's going to be it's going to negatively impact students it's negatively impact programs and dan greenstein has basically said Whatever, you don't know that, you know, blah, 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 Look over here, look over here, look how smart I am, right? Um, yes, I am Chancellor McDreamy, and I am here to tell you that I am smarter than all of you, and I have all this data, and I have these nice little leaf books that can show you that this is what um, this is what is true. Even though when ABSCUF and other organizations had independent people come in and could take a look at what the potential economic impact would be would have on the state, um, what would have on programs, every independent kind of analysis has shown that it's going to negatively impact programs. It's negatively going to impact the economy. It's going to lead to a bunch of job loss and students are going to be left with less choice. But because Dan Greenstein knows better than all of us, because he's the smartest guy in the room, he's gone ahead and he said, nope, we're going to go with my plan. And he's gotten people like even Democrats, like, uh, like uh, Judy Swank, for example, from Berks County. She's out there basically, hawk she's drank the Kool-Aid fully. She's out there saying, well, sometimes we just have to change. We're doing it for our students, right? She's like, she drank the Kool-Aid so like so thoroughly that she's out there making the case for him, right? She was the kind of pro-education Democrat from Berks County who's in the district for um, um, Kutztown. And now she's just kind of like, she's hawking his, his wares. So there you go. Um, and which is another reason why I wanted to focus on Kutztown University eventually here today, because, you know, uh, she's in my district or not, she's not my district. She's the district for Kutztown University and she's hockey's wears too as well. And so there's some there's what happens downstream. So already there's, you know, students are kind of running into problems with registration and everything at those consolidated universities and so on. Right. But a second thing that he's done that has flown under the radar in terms of its impact has been a an austerity policy without really calling an austerity policy. 
So essentially what he's done, he has basically told all of the Pasha universities, not just the ones that are being consolidated, that they have to achieve a particular faculty-to-student ratio, okay? And that faculty-student ratio is, like, there's not a whole lot of, lot of guidance about how they're supposed to do that. They're just, they need to get to there. And it's basically an order on high. And of course, university presidents, like good lap dogs, just go, oh, okay, okay, march along with it. And just carry out their orders. They don't really care as long as they can get to the number that they're, you know, that the guy that they worship at the top is basically given their orders and they want to kind of like, you know, like ingratiate themselves to you. They're going to carry out those orders. Right. Certainly at Kutztown University, President Hawkinson has certainly done that. And Greenstein has patted him on the head publicly several times, like it said, good boy. So he's definitely done a good job. So anyways. So you have this ratio. Now, here's the problem with the ratio that the chancellor has done. So basically what he does is, or what he did is he looked at this, this kind of like moment in the history of enrollment at Pashi where there was what he considers to be a sufficient amount of funds coming in, right? And he in other words that this was the this was these were the good times right he said basically we need to get back to the good times and he said well because in part because the student enrollment has declined right um that we no longer have this let's say let's just say call it 20 to 1 okay let's just call it 20 to 1 we need a 20 to 1 or 20 let's say 25 to 1 i don't know whatever it's 25 to 1 20 to 1 say 20 to 1 student to faculty ratio or faculty student ratio no student to faculty ratio 20 to 1 so let's just, let's say it's, let's say it's 25. Let's say it's 25 or 22 or whatever it might be. Let's pick 25. Let's say it's 25 to one. Okay. No, no, I'll, I'll go more conservative. Say it's 20 to one. Okay. And he's saying that basically, well, look, you had enrollment that's fell. And now that, uh, that 20 to one has dropped. Right. And it's now like 18 to one or 17 to one or whatever like this at other universities or, you know, different universities that might be 25 to one and it's fallen to 18 to one or so on. He says, we need to get back to that ratio at this point where we were viable, right? That's the language that he'll use. And that magic number is at a time when enrollments had peaked and faculty were completely overwhelmed because there was insufficient hiring for faculty members. All right. What happened at that particular point, and I'll give you just an example of what happened at Kutztown. So at Kutztown, in, uh, let's say it's 2009, I think is when all the retrenchments and things like this came down. But there was, the, there was, we had this contract, right? We had a contract, I'm forgetting the exact date of the contract, but it was right around in that time, maybe 2008 or something like this. But we had a contract that um, was started playing was started playing hardball, right? This is one of the first ones we played hardball. There was, uh, I believe, it was still under Judy Hample, uh, former provost, who basically said, "Okay, we are going to change your health benefits and retirement benefits, right?" And they pushed hard on this. The, the union, frankly, was not prepared for this kind of like you know like blood battle. Um, but she went full throttle and attacking that and made the deal, right? Said, if you retire now, you can keep your benefits the way they are. But anybody after this date will be forced 
to take on whatever changes happen, right? And at that time, we happened to have more senior faculty, right? Who had been teaching there for years, right? And so what, what was that? Those folks looked at this and they said, I'm getting out now. And there was a, an exodus, right? Um, and it was, it, was a, it was remarkable. Our department and the English department at Kutztown, we lost half our department, right? In April and May of a year, they were just gone. They all retired, right? So there was no time to hire new tenure track faculty. So at the last minute, we had to scramble to take overloads just to cover our classes and hire adjunct faculty to plug the gaps, right? And like, and look, thank God, right? We had, we hired amazing adjunct faculty, right? They were just, I mean, it, it, I don't even know how it was impossible. It was, it was so crazy about um, what had happened. We were trying to figure out how the hell are we gonna actually teach our classes, right? We have a flood of new faculty that, that, that come in, right? Enrollment is going up, right? Everything is filled. So we have to have, and we have, because enrollment has gone up at the same time this other thing is happening, well, then we had to hire more temporary faculty or more adjunct faculty, and there was no place to put them. We didn't have sufficient office space. Our administration was actually going to take them and after we kept on complaining, like you can't put them in this, you can't put them in a closet. You, know, you can't allow them to you, you have office hours in their car. Our contract requires this. So they said one, one summer, they said, we found office space. And it was in a room that seasonally floods. The watermarks were still on the in the room. And they were going to say, and it was on the other side of campus from where our department was. We're like, no way. And so we eventually pressured them and forced them as our union, right? I actually personally got plans and contacted companies and gave them to our provost at our meet and discuss table to say, this is what we need to do. So this is what they did at Duke University when they had this kind of thing. So we actually had, and again, it wasn't the ones that I gave, but eventually they bought, they rented trailers for classroom space and for office space that sat in our parking lot. We didn't have enough classroom space, so students were getting taught in trailers. We didn't have an office space, so faculty were kind of like like shoved into this thing with no bathrooms or anything. Like my version, you have to have bathrooms. You have to have bathrooms in a workspace. No. So like in the middle of the winter and everything, you had to go to the bathroom. You had to come out of the trailer. You had to walk across the parking lot into the building to go to the bathroom and walk back out. That's what they did for several years. We had, and our administrator... Javier Savallos at the time, the president of the university, basically said, no, we are not hiring additional faculty now to cover the, you know, the classes. So what's going to happen? Our classes, our class size went up, right? Our workload went through the roof. Students, in some cases, were sitting on like windowsills and the floors because there was not enough space in there. We had to kind of move to tell the university that you're violating fire codes by packing so many students into this, into this classroom. Right. They were overloaded. We didn't have enough faculty. We didn't. And our students were overloaded in, in the classroom. We didn't have sufficient space. That was the time. 2010, when the Chancellor Greenstein, that's his magic number. That's what he wants to go back to. 
he wants to say, oh, look at this number, because he's looking at his nice little press, like his little spreadsheet with all the little, little numbers and greens and reds and things like this. And he's like, oh, he never asked about what the conditions were like then, never asked what it was like, what was going on at that particular time. Right. And as our current ABSCUF president, Jamie Martin, has argued. If. Well, first of all, we were warned. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons we were told that we couldn't hire additional faculty is because that we were experiencing a demographic bump, that it would go back down. They knew all this was coming. This is a crisis. They're talking about demographic crisis. They knew about it. They built big buildings and big classrooms and spent lots of money like that, but they knew about this. So what Jamie Martin, Dr. Jamie Martin has argued, if you stretch out the timeline over 20 years, right, Basically, what you find, you don't see this kind of like, like, you know, like huge gaps. You see a kind of a little bump, but it's eventually it's basically remained a kind of a steady upward climb of enrollment. It's not a crisis. If we had planned for it successfully, but nobody wants to hear that argument. So now we have Chancellor Greenstein comes in with a Silicon Valley kind of like move fast and break things mentality. And that's what he's doing. And so. You give these ratios to all this. So what are university presidents to do? Now, look, I'm not going to kind of I'm not going to be on the side of kind of treating all university presidents as victims in this because they are willing partners in this process. So what they start doing is they start looking for ways that they can cut faculty members. In some cases, you have process of retrenchment. I think with the numbers, it's over 40 faculty members are going to be losing their job in the state system. I think it's probably more than that, but I'm just going to say it's the number that's sticking in my memory right now. At other universities, like Kutztown University, we're not seeing retrenchment. Like, in other words, we're not having faculty that are being fired, even though, you know, basically, even if they're tenured or, you know, senior faculty, doesn't matter. We haven't, we're not seeing kind of massive programs being shut down. We're not being forced to consolidate with another university yet. Right. But that ratio is the soft brutality. Right. The consolidations are the big kind of like, you know, look over there the big explosions. We've got charges that are basically being set at all the universities by being a force to follow this, um, by follow this ratio. And so presidents of universities, basically what they have to do is they have to cut faculty members. And the easiest way to cut faculty members is to encourage them to retire or leave, right? So what has happened at Kutztown University is in a number of departments, faculty members see the writing on the wall. They're being treated poorly, right? They're not being given the resources that they were promised. They're seeing, saying like, oh my God, I'm going to be, teaching in some place where they're going to the program might be shut down or they're going to retrench. I'm out of here. So they go back on the job market. A lot of junior faculty members, newer faculty members, they go out on the job market, they find better jobs and they leave. And that happened in two departments, right? It's happened in my department, happened in communication studies department. It's happened in the business department. It's happened in a bunch of places. And so then what the administrators do, what the university president does is basically said, okay, you lost those two faculty members, um, but no, we're not going to give you a new line to hire them. Even though they were a tenure track position that, that was already there, even though that line already exists, we're just going to not rehire. 
And so now you have two fewer faculty members in that department, two fewer faculty members in this department, three now actually, four, I'm sorry, fewer faculty members in this department, two fewer faculty members in that department. And if you're focused on your, on your spreadsheet, right? That's good news for you as an administrator, right? Because you're looking at it, you're like, oh, look, we're getting closer to that ratio, that magic ratio, right? Because all they give a shit about are the spreadsheets. What does that mean in practice? Well, I'm going to tell you the story of a little program called um, Social Media Theory and Strategy. Now, Social Media Theory and Strategy is a, uh, it is a major that I teach in. Um, I was part of conversations early on um, with... A, to, you know, the first kind of like beginnings of this program when Claire Van Enns, she was the chair of the communications department, decided to um, try to saw that, hey, look, they're doing some of this kind of digital stuff in English. And hey, look, they're doing some of this digital stuff in electronic media and they're doing some of this digital stuff in computer science. Why don't we all get into a room and see if there's a way that we can kind of maximize what we're already doing instead of each of us trying to kind of create our own individual programs? What if we work together? use courses we were already developing and teaching to build a program. That was like the model, right? That were like, it was like, that's what we were being told in the university at that time. Like, you know, we can't have all these new brand new programs. We're like, look, this is a way to create something that's good for our students. <coughs> Excuse me. Right. That is an emerging kind of like area, professional area. And the classes already exist. We just need to do a few little things, add some additional, you know, what one or two, three, four classes eventually so that we kind of fill it out as a consistent major. Okay, cool. All right. And so we did it. And I think the program now is what, four years old, five years old, which, it, you know, went through uh, first as a minor and then it was this one. And then it finally got launched as this social media theory and strategy major about four or five years ago, 2017, I think is when it was. Right. And it was hugely popular. Right. Students added minors. They added double majors that we recruited all sorts of students into the program. We're having amazing placement records so far of students that are, are finding jobs right away. I have a student right now who's basically, you know, doing an internship and has already been kind of offered a job as a junior. Right. Because of what she's doing. Right. It's a, it's an awesome program. However. Oh, and they spent about $300,000 building out these state-of-the-art labs, conversions of these other classrooms, right? And untolds tens of thousands of dollars in kind of public relation campaigns to promote this, right? It was, and you've probably heard me to say, say this before in our program, it was the perfect example of collaboration, the way it should work. Administration, faculty, IT personnel, like the uh, budget and finance. It was like, I, I was like, I didn't know where I was for a while because I'm like, holy crap. This is the way it's supposed to feel, right? Like when you're all working together towards the same goal, you're thinking about different things differently, you have certain constraints, so you problem solve about how to get it. It was great, right? Everybody was solely behind us, right? The president of the university himself was out there recruiting like businesses, right? We've got like, you know, he's uh, he's shown up in my classroom several times, at least twice, I should say. I don't want to over, I don't exaggerate, at least twice to show one of the kind of like uh, the, um, the council of trustees or somebody about like how great a room this is, right? You know, whatever it is. And look at, look at this, look at the cool stuff that they're doing here. Right. And I had a, I had a, one of the trustees who runs um, a company out of Allentown talked about just like 
talk about how great Kutztown University students are. And they look to recruit Kutztown University students for coming out of this program. All this kind of stuff, right? It was great. But you can only run a program if you have faculty members to teach it. So for the last couple of years, the Kutztown University administration has refused to grant lines where they're needed in social media theory and strategy. And that's pressed the resources of the departments, right? Both my department in English, the uh, communication studies department, the business, the, the business department and so on, right? And this past year, two of those faculty members who taught in, we call it the SMS program, who taught in the SMS program, took jobs elsewhere because they were like, I'm out of here. I got a better gig. Right. And then the university said, well, we are not going to rehire. We're not going to bring in a new faculty members to replace those lines. So that brings, they had three faculty members. It brings them down to one faculty member in that area who cannot potentially cannot possibly cover the classes. And reportedly, the administration is basically not all that too keen about, you know, seeing that as too much of a problem. So what happened? This is also happening in my department with a, with a different major. Also cross-disciplinary one. So the communication studies department made the choice. Seeing the fact that you have this program, even though it's a great program, even though students love the program, even though there's currently, what, uh, 40 some odd majors, I think, right now. Um, no, it's more than that. Um, but, but anyways, just, there's, I mean, there's a significant, it's one of the larger majors on campus, right? But if you don't have the faculty members that cover the classes, the students can't get the classes, what choices are you left with? By pulling faculty members who are not trained in this to try to get them to teach these courses so students can get those classes means they those faculty members have to be taken away from other parts of their program for other programs, which now puts that one in crisis. And they're teaching classes that that's not their area, which is not what students signed up for. So the communication studies department basically said, OK, we're going to put the program in moratorium. In other words, we're going to shut down the program. And I don't think they had too much choice, to be honest with you. I mean, what are you going to do? You can't just will classes to teach themselves. And I tell you this story and spend this time to do this because, yes, it's personal to me. Yes, it is. I've watched it full time. And yes, it feels like once again, like a chunk of my heart gets ripped out at, from this place. But more importantly is like, that's the slow burn of devastation that is happening at every university in the state system of higher education right now because of Chancellor Greenstein's policies. The big consolidation stuff of the universities are his big flashy move that he's going to write books about and he's going to be he's going to land some policy gig that's going to make millions of dollars all over again because he's going to champion this as the new model for higher education. You know, it, I mean, it's it, it, it's all written on the wall. Like, I wouldn't be surprised he gets some co-authors, right? He's got his group of faculty members that are supportive of him, too, as well, because they're getting kind of kickbacks, not kickbacks, but they're getting praise from him and resources from him. So. You know, 
He'll do fine. He'll have people that, are, that will love him and they will tell the media that they love him and all this other kind of stuff while the rest of us suffer. While our students suffer. While Pennsylvania's commitment to higher education suffers. And so you've got the flashy stuff and you've got the slow burn destruction. That has been the neoliberal model of the shock doctrine for 40 years. Doesn't matter if it comes in the Chancellor McDreamy, oh, like, I'm a cool guy and I'm pretty liberal. Doesn't matter if it comes in that package or it comes in the the oaf in office Trump. They're doing the same things. So that's where we're at. And and the reason why I wanted I wanted to foreground that today is one because that decision just happened with the social media studies program. No, that's number one. Number two is because this coming year is going to be a contract negotiations year for faculty in the state system of higher education. Every indication is is that they are going to come hard at faculty members. They're going to come hard at taking away our rights, forcing us to teach online, forcing program consolidation forcing givebacks in terms of benefits, givebacks in terms of wages, but more importantly, control over our curriculum. So buckle up, everybody. It is just one more bucking Bronco that we're going to be asked to ride in these times coming up. And frankly, I mean, I know that people are exhausted. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, we're going to have to basically, we're going to have to be shutting things down in order to preserve abortion rights in this state and in this country. Like, I mean, seriously, like militantly shutting things down. People always throw out, we should have a general strike. I mean, this is, we need a general strike. And I don't mean just on a Sunday, right? There's this Mother's Day general strike coming up on Sunday. It's a, it's a Sunday, okay? It's a great symbolic action. It's a great beginning to organizing. But until we're willing to go out of the streets out of our jobs and shut everything down, it's not going to have an impact. And we cannot ask just like one or two people to do it. No, organize collectively to do this, to shut things down. Does that mean that some of us are going to lose our jobs? Yes, it does. But guess what? (laughs) When I go to say goodbye to my daughter in the morning, Is it worth it? Yes. If I lost my job because I went on a general strike to protect her rights, damn straight. I'll do it any day. But I'm not going to be an idiot and go out and stand there by myself. This is not about individual action. This is about collective action. And we've got, as I said before, a Democratic Party who is incapable of doing that right now. So we have to do it on our own. There's already organizing going on. There's already amazing stuff going on. It's a matter of kind of coordinating with each other and then really upping our willingness to risk. I've been reading Ken, Kim Kelly's book, Fight Like Hell, as a lot of people have. And one of the lessons from that book, as is from any in labor history, is that no one's going to give us our rights. 
in so many of the instances and why I think the, that her book is so valuable and so many of the instances that she highlights there of workers who are not protected by a union, who didn't even have the right to organize and yet they organized anywhere, anyway. And guess what? The very first mass strike in this country, you know who conducted it? Women in Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island. It was a textile strike in Providence, Rhode Island. Those women, immigrant women, women from multiple ethnicities, they walked out and they demanded. They went on strike. It wasn't men. It wasn't white men. It was those women who took it and organized in their shop and said, enough, and we're going to walk out. She tells the story of black women, Filipino men and women, agricultural workers who are not protected by our labor laws, who went out and earned their self a better life. That's in the labor thing. We're faced right now with basically saying about whether or not we're willing to watch more than the majority of this population of this country being condemned to second-class citizenship. And if that's not something that we're willing to risk for, I don't know what the hell is. And that's on top of a planet that is headed toward dystopia. <laughs> that is on top of the gutting of our social safety nets. That is on top of the eradication of our voting rights. got to put all those things together. Those things together is our platform. But Emily makes a good point, her too as well, and she posted this a little bit a while ago as a comment, says, yes, uh, look, Josh Shapiro, like, and let me tell you, in Pennsylvania, those voting rights, you know, we could say, oh, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, like in the states, at least our state, blah, 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 blah. At least our state, at least it's not me, right? You know how, you know how pe that plays on people's minds, right? Well, the only reason why Pennsylvania has not already had massive abortion restrictions has been because Tom Wolf is a Democrat and he's our governor. Tom Wolf's term is up. We have another election now for governor. We have one Democrat, Josh Shapiro, and we have a Christian nationalist running and a whole bunch of other right-wing right nutjobs that are just frothing at the bit. They're chomping at the bit. They're frothing at the mouth to get rid of um, kind of abortion rights in this state. But she's absolutely right. Unless we elect Josh Shapiro as governor in, in Pennsylvania, kiss it goodbye. So let's do that, huh? Let's also elect Democrats, independents in our districts, in our state legislature, Yes, I know the Washington, D.C. races are always the sexy ones, but we need our state legislatures to start looking more like us. So let's do it. All right, I'm going to stop preaching here, everybody. I know I've been very preachy today, and uh, I, I apologize a bit for that. Um, it's just, uh, it's been that week, you know? It's been that week. Uh, I appreciate you sticking around. I appreciate your... Uh, comments. I appreciate everybody who's kind of tuned in right now and everybody who's on our podcast. And I appreciate the support that you've shown the show, you've shown me, you've shown the work that we do um, kind of over the years. 
Uh, remind you, you can help support this show by going to patreon.com slash rcpress. You become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Um, you can also, if you want to help support our kind of uh, our community fund, uh, you can head to ragingchicken.levelfield.net and help our campaign there to kind of invest in progressive candidates and community organizing. We've got a couple projects that we might be launching a kind of specific kind of um, task-based one um, that's based upon uh, some of the local, uh, some of the races that are going on around here. Um, we shall see. More info on that kind of coming up. But thank you for sticking with me today. And, uh, you know, if you uh, if you listened, I appreciate you listening. I appreciate your engagement and I appreciate you. So thank you all. Uh, thank you for everything that you're already doing. I know everybody is strapped in. I know everybody is doing a tremendous amount of work, which is why I guess we have to find more people to bring into the fold because um, otherwise we're all going to burn out and then we all lose. So. All right, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. I appreciate everybody. Um, make sure patreon.com says RC Press help support this show. Five bucks a month is all it takes. All right, everybody. Have a good weekend. See ya!